Ask. Attributes, skills and knowledge. Brought to you by the PGAs of Europe. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for making the time to chat with me today. I wanted to start by asking, how did golf become a passion which eventually would lead on to becoming a career? Dad played, um, and it was always his time away from the family, so me and my brother were never never taken to the golf course. And um, when I was 15, I sort of had enough of this, and I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to go to a car boot stand and buy a 7-iron. So I bought a 7-iron, sort of whacking it around the school field, my dad came up to show me how to do it and I was he was like oh my god he's already better than me he's only been sort of hitting a ball in a field for a week yeah so um yeah it was kind of I suppose it was born out of that the, the desire to actually do something that I wasn't allowed to do right so that's the way I sort of I got involved in it and obviously watching something that was big for me as a kid was watching the um pro celebrity golf yeah. Lyle was definitely one of them but um, used to enjoy watching that with Peter Alice commentating You say that your father played but was there anyone else in the family that played? My granddad, my uncle and, and my dad went off for golf every Sunday and you know we, we weren't even allowed to go to the golf club I don't think he was a member anywhere he just enjoyed playing but um, yeah, I think it was that sort of taboo that sort of got me interested Did you play any other sports at the time? sort of playing two years above my age group at football um, and then broke both ankles playing football and I think that was due to playing with stronger players and maybe if if I knew what I know now then I probably wouldn't have played up two years and just kept at the same same what age were you then uh, 14 15, which is why I was looking for another another sport to play I mean I played all sports I played Badminton, squash, tennis, you know, all, all, all sports, really. You clearly found a home in golf. What was it about the game that resonated with you? I remember when I first started, I had a little Johnny Miller driver, a little purple-headed thing, and a flagside seven-iron and a putter. And I'd literally dig a hole in each corner of the school field with my seven-iron, you know, just dig a hole, put a stick in it, and that was us for the day, you know, my friend, me and a friend just play there all day going from corner to corner yeah. and um, then when when I started playing at the local municipal course it was like oh this is different now can't can't even you know play to an 18 handicap and then uh, I get quite sort of OCD about things so I literally practiced all day every day for for about six months and I got my first handicap, which was 10. Nice. Um, six months after that, of more OCD and whacking as many balls as possible, I was down to one. Right. And uh, following that, there was an awful lot of pressure applied inadvertently, I think, from the local pro at the club and, and members saying that I was going to be the next this and I was going to be the next that. And I was like... Yeah, do you know what? I just just love playing sport. I wasn't really looking to try and get on tour or anything at that time. And um, this turned me off the game completely. Didn't want to didn't want to play. Didn't feel like I, I needed that sort of added pressure. You mentioned OCD earlier. Is that a trait you recognise in the things or in all things, or is that just something in golf? And I'm quite a tidy person, so 
don't like things being too much out of place. Yeah. Um, my my parents used to say I wouldn't get my toys out to play because I'd have to put them all back. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's I think it's not massively OCD, but I think there's definitely something there. Like so I've I've recently started playing squash and. Um, for the first sort of year, 18 months, I'd play every single day. And now that's kind of wearing off a little bit and I'll play sort of three or four times a week. Right. But yeah, if it, I guess it's a, I don't know if it's OCD or it's a thirst to get better at something. By the sound of it, effectively you went from playing on a field to one handicap in just around 12 months. Can you Can you fill in the blanks for me? Because... Did, did, well, look, did you have any coaching at that time or did you just go out there and learn and do your own thing? No coaching whatsoever. I mean, I can remember the pro at the local club. I guess we all looked for, you know, good players and, and want to work with good players. And he came over to the range once and and said, you need to change your grip. And I remember it. <laughs> there was a road that ran alongside the practice ground and he changed my grip, and the first shot that I hit flew onto the road and ricocheted under somebody's um, moped. Sort of caught him underneath, and I was like, oh, my God. Could have killed that guy there. So um, that was kind of, yeah, the only coaching that I'd had, really. You said that the pressure that you felt from other people effectively stopped you from wanting to play for probably four years. So what did you do during that period? Oh, this is... This could get a little deep. Um, things went a bit pear-shaped at home. Um, ended up homeless, living on the streets for a year. Um, got into sort of uh, DJing music and, and dancing and stuff like that. And then uh, opened up a nightclub when I was 20. Well, I didn't own the nightclub, but was running a particular night. Uh, the manager, I was packing the place and taking half the door money. That was the deal that we would have, we had on. And um, just one week, he said, look, you're not needed next week. And I was like, well, you know, why not? We're, we're making a real good go of this and it's earning a lot of money. And then he was, he got rid of me and started paying two DJs, sort of £50 a night each, um, to run the same music. Right. It was then that the decision was made um, by myself to, that I was going to get back into golf I respect you sharing this and we won't go any further into a place that you don't want to go so moving on how did you make the decision to get back into golf? I moved into a, I moved into a homeless hostel and there was a guy there who was running the hostel and he helped me massively so um, he applied to the Prince's Trust when I was, uh, I don't know what age I was then, but he applied to the Prince's Trust to get me some golf clubs and entered me into a competition, which I hadn't played for nearly four years. And we entered this competition and I won it. And we won a trip to Spain and we both went off to Spain for the trip. And we discussed things while we were out there. And he said, you know, how are we, how we going to do this? How are we going to get back into golf? And I said, well, you know, maybe I need to write letters to all the golf clubs in the country. So I sent off, I think, approximately 200 letters to golf clubs. 
and the head pro at Roehampton got back to me and said, come up for an interview. Went up for an interview and moved to London sort of two or three months later. Who was the professional there? Alan Scott. Right. His dad was a Ryder Cup captain and partnered John Jacobs quite a lot, actually. I know that we'll come to John Jacobs a little later, but interesting that you would have that connection even then. Looking back and speaking to John when I met him later, he said, yeah, Sid, Sid, his name was Sid Scott. I don't know if you remember him, but he said, I think we were unbeaten every time we played together. So it's a great place to learn about customer service. And I guess looking back on it now, I guess that, you know, that's where my customer service was instilled in me now. Even to this day, I look back and go, yeah, I'm doing that because of that time I spent there. So how old would you be when you started to work at Roehampton? Uh, 21, there for about three years. Did you do your PGA training there? Yeah. Right, so at the time... What are you thinking? Were you thinking that you might be a tour player or a golf club professional or a coach? Or, or did you just have a, an open mind? I'd, I didn't have the same determination and drive that I had when I was playing first. You know, I didn't have that OCD about it. Yes, I still loved playing the game, but I'd recognised that I wasn't, I wasn't putting in as much effort as I did before. And I think that came from working in an environment where, you know, you're constantly at the golf course. What do you want to do when you, when you finish work? You want to go home. You want to chill out, go and have your dinner or, or whatever it might be. So, you know, the, the shift pattern up there was you, you got in at eight and you left at six, you know, and you were allowed like an hour, hour and a half to go and practice. Well, I, I'd already made my mind up that that wasn't anywhere near enough effort to put in. So, um, I still enjoyed competing, loved playing, um, and did so for the next sort of 10 years. At what point did you start to shift your thinking to having a role that you have today as a coach? When I started reading more and more golf books, really, I think I, the, one of the first books that sort of made my mind up was um, Hogan's Modern Fundamentals, where I think it's page 61, and he says... Um, you know, if you want to be a great player, you need to play. And if you want to be a great coach, you need to coach. There's not enough time in the day for both. And that really resonated with me. So um, I started putting in a lot more effort into the coaching side of it. Where were you working at that time? Fursley Golf Course in Denmead, which is local. I moved back from London. I still had the same, the same girlfriend uh, who lived down here when I moved to London. And there was an opportunity arose while I was in London to come back down and, and work back in Portsmouth, so I did. Was that working out as a good move for you? It, hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? But I think if, if I could do it again, I would have probably stayed at Roehampton. I was there for about 11 years. And that, that particular professional came in one day and said... Um, gave me a book and he said have a read of that and it was Tony Robbins Awaken the Giant Within and I've never really read a book other than a golf book you know, maybe sort of Roger Redhat when, when I was at primary school but um, I've never really read a book outside of golf and I read it uh, I don't know how long it took me it's about 500 pages I think it took me a couple of weeks as soon as I read it 
I handed in my resignation. Um, didn't have anywhere to go, but knew that I'd stagnated for 11 years. Um, he was really shocked. Um, actually, what happened was I'd had a, a little baby girl. I had a conversation with the pro, and I said, look, I don't want to work Sunday afternoons. I need Sunday afternoons off. I've got a family, a young family now, and I need to make some changes. That didn't happen. And, you know, just made a decision that, after reading this book as well, that it just wasn't for me anymore. Mm-hmm. So contacted um, another pro that I know that worked in Winchester, and he said, fantastic, love you to come and work for me, and off I went. Who was that professional? Uh, Malcolm Scott. What did you do with Malcolm? Uh, very similar, and as much as, uh, I mean, I took a, a huge, huge wage drop to go to this place because the clientele that I built up at, at, at the course for sort of 11 years, you know, it wasn't wasn't difficult to fill your lesson diary, whereas going somewhere sort of 30 miles away, now things change dramatically. So um, I was in charge of sort of junior membership, junior, you know, junior lessons, obviously doing my own one-on-one tuition. But he said, he just said to me, um, there was a local free newspaper and he said, these guys are looking for somebody to do a golf article. So I did a golf article. Um, they wanted to do it every month. So we did it every month. Um, and then I started thinking, well, he actually said to me, do you know what? You've got a real talent for this. And he said, every time I talk to you, I learn something new about golf coaching. I think you need to specialize in it a little bit more. So then I think I contacted today's golfer, did some sort of magazine shoots for them. And um, at the uh, Hampshire um, presentation evening, um, John Jacobs was the speaker. And obviously being into coaching like I was then, just made a beeline for him afterwards and said, John, I've got to spend some time with you. I've got to to have a chat and pick your brains. And that kind of friendship developed from there. I'm going to dig into that a little bit later, but... Look, I've known you for a number of years now and I'm beginning to fill in some of the blanks, which helps me to better understand. One thing I've really enjoyed about spending time with you is that you say what you mean and that you're obviously very, very proactive and self-determined. I mean, you you sent out the 200 letters to golf clubs looking for a job. You you read the book after which you gave in your resignation and so you understand that this was not for you and that here's another example of going for what you want and John Jacobs was certainly one of the biggest reference points in golf coaching and seemingly you just went over to him with no fear just simply walked over and asked him for some time and for a chat and tell me how did you feel at the time what was going through your mind I didn't really know how he would react because I would you know I just assumed that he'd be inundated with requests to go and watch him coach or spend some time with him but he was so accommodating um, what time was this? So this was 2000 and sort of six, 2007 maybe. So what sort of age would he be then? Yeah, it was around 80, I would have thought. So 2009, um, this, 
this position where I'm at at the moment came up. I applied for that and the place was in a real mess. So I redesigned the clubhouse and shop and, and teaching areas. Um, we put an awful lot of work into it. And um, I contacted John to see if he would like to open it for us. To which he replied, absolutely, let me know the date and I'm, I'm on my way. So I'd spent, an awful, I'd spent probably two years... Um, building that relationship with John so I'd go over and we'd sit in his living room and discuss golf swings and I'd show him videos of my students and just uh, just unbelievable really it's like couldn't believe it was happening every time I used to go over there I was like this is just sort of pinch myself to yeah. and he was 2009 so he was sort of mid 80s then and he gave a clinic. No, he he opened the opened the clubhouse. He talked to the members for about two hours, standing up. I said, "Come on, John, just just take some time out and come and have a glass of wine or something. Just just relax." He said, "Oh no, there's I saw some juniors on the range, and he came out on the range, and he was out there for another three hours teaching at sort of mid eighties, which I just thought was incredible. His passion for the game was just." unprecedented really yeah my father's a golf professional and he tells me stories of when John had one of his golf schools in Blackpool which was not too far away from where my father worked as a club professional and he did a similar thing to yourself and asked John if he could go along and watch him coach so he used to go over there and there'd be a couple of other local guys there local professionals and when John had finished his shift at 9 or 9.30 at night John would work with the guys including my father watch them hit balls and help them coach each other for an hour or two and and as he has done for all of his career as I understand it he would never charge for them for his time it, it was quite incredible really he always made reference to that that he'd never charge a golf professional for a lesson I think uh, I, I I started or created another opportunity with Jim Hardy um you know, getting to know him and I spent a lot of time at Jim's house in America. And when I'd come back, although Jim was uh, the first guy that opened the John Jacobs Golf School in America, I mean, I learned an awful lot from Jim and uh, the time that we spent together, he, he is another really passionate golf coach. I mean, we went to the, I, I got up in the morning at his house and spoke to his wife he said oh he's on the practice ground because his garden back garden backs onto champions um golf course in in houston so asked him where he was he was out there practicing this was about half six in the morning so i said oh do you think he'd mind if i, I you know pop over there so i popped over and said you know what well, I, I thought of this thing last night and i was just going to try it out I mean, the guy's 70 years old, but he's still looking for answers. Yep. So that, I think that inquisitive nature is, is so, so important with coaching. But we came back in and he's got a putting mat in his lounge and he just started putting for about an hour. He said, we've got to go and meet Peter Jacobson down at the range. We're going to give him a lesson. So we go down to the range. And I mean, the lesson isn't, isn't half an hour or an hour. You know, we're there for sort of four or five hours working on different things. So we then had dinner afterwards. It's getting late now. It's probably 7.30, 8 o'clock in the evening. 
we're driving home and he said, I need to pop into a, a hardware store. So we go to this hardware store and he buys loads of pipes and fitting fitments for the pipes and things like this. We go home, we're there, it's probably half nine now, and he starts building this swing aid. And he's like, I'm going to use this next week. And it's like, that's the whole day. And every day was exactly the same where it was just golf, golf, golf's on TV. Everything was like almost an obsession. Yeah. Yeah, it was a different time when John got started. I often comment that, I mean, my membership number is relatively low as there was probably only two or maybe two and a half thousand members of the PGF, GB&I in those days and today there's probably approaching 8,000 yeah. well, times have changed and so have the demands on these coaches but what is really interesting is the passion that you witnessed in both John and Jim and it's a passion that you share we were speaking a little bit before we turned the recorder on and you mentioned that you saw a shot that got you thinking and now you can't wait to get out to the bunker and give it a try for yourself it, it, so it's that passion and I, I don't think you can teach that it seems to me that it's either in you or it's not in your DNA. And I know that you're very committed to helping people and that you go the extra mile. So what do you think is, what do you think it is about Kevin Flynn that gives you that passion? Again, quite a deep one. Um, I don't think my, my dad was particularly helpful in, in many areas of my life. And I think I dealt with it very differently to my brother. They always say history repeats itself, and I've tried so, so hard to make that not happen. So I think helping people can become a bit of an obsession in as much as, you know, you're you're in bed and you're you're looking at golf swings and trying to help people at sort of 1 a.m. and your wife's sort of looking at you going, this is crazy, you know, what are you doing? But I don't know, I've just got a thirst to help people. A change of tack here, Kevin. So what does a normal Saturday look like for you? Come into work, get here for sort of half seven. Um, one of my assistants will will open up. Uh, we open at seven, so I'll get here for about half seven. I'll make sure the swing studio is spotless, so give it a good hoover. And then I'll teach from sort of eight, half eight until about one-ish. Um, stop for half an hour and then probably teach until about five-ish and then get home for a you know maybe take the children out and go for something to eat that's a typical a typical Saturday for me just recently I'm trying to keep Sundays free because my son's doing really well at football and um you know that I'm really passionate about seeing the kids development as well so things are changing just a little bit in as much as if I go back sort of five ten years when the kids were really young um, I was overly passionate about other people's children and seeing them improve. Now, uh, the number one for me is obviously seeing my children develop and improve and getting a healthy balance between other people's children is quite difficult. You're not alone in experiencing that, I can assure you, and you already know it. Many coaches are scratching their heads, and I've been one of those guys. I guess the question is, what is the right balance? And, and also, what is the level of engagement that you have with the kids and the parents between you and them and you, the, between the kid and you? So clearly, you've got to manage multiple relationships here. So with an eye to the future, how do you see the PGA coach managing those relationships and getting the balance as we go forward? I, um, I've got a lad that I teach who's 
he's just just at college, and his dad for the last four years of his coaching um, with me has come into the swing studio and answers every single question that I ask the lad. And I let it go on for quite a, probably two years. I let it go on for, and I said to him after two years, can we let, let the player answer the question? And he said, yeah, fine. No problem. And I looked at him as though he was interfering and a pushy parent and blah, blah, blah. But actually when the coach deals with that situation, it is dealt with immediately. And then he's, he's still having lessons with me now. And just recently I've started doing some research about how players, rather than how coaches think about their players, how players perceive their parents. So he's one of the guys that I've spoken to in depth about it. And I said, you know, how do, how do you feel about your relationship with your dad and how he's, you know, always there for your golf and he's always watching you play every round and blah, blah, blah. And he said, I love it. And I said, oh, right, okay. So, you, you know, you're quite happy with how things have gone in the last few years. Yeah, I absolutely love my dad being there. So I think it's a perception of the coach that this is a pushy parent. But then actually when you talk to the player, it's like, oh, no, I'd be absolutely devastated if he didn't come and watch me play. So you you hear this term pushy parent all the time, but how about the perception of the player rather than the coach? I know that you're very well educated and most of that is self-motivated and has come after your training with the PGA. So what kind of training and study have you done? Yeah, PG Dip was a was an eye-opener with regards to sports pedagogy and, um, you know, the development of juniors and the social element, the biopsychosocial element of coaching. I think that was a, a real learning curve and certainly coming from a not particularly academic background was a was a real struggle for me. But um, I've been toying with the idea of, of, of um, engaging in a master's, but um, it's just time so time consuming at the moment. I've got so much going on, but that was a that was a big learning curve. Um, all of the times that I've spent with Jim and John and other coaches as well like the the community of practice there's always something to learn there on the facebook group so um yeah just it's never ending it's never going to stop i've just start reading another book yeah just continual learning and you know you've got the highlighter pen there and obviously the book that you recommended uh, ego is the enemy that was a good read and just, I think, yes, it's passionate, just passionate about it. You will have seen many mistakes that young players make as they're coming through, and, and by the way, we all make them. So, But what do you think are the most common mistakes that these players make as they try to progress from being a decent amateur player to becoming a good amateur player, and then, of course, for some, going on to becoming a professional player? I think that there's far too much technical... Um, the technical side, the, 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 the guys that, that don't do it particularly well, don't make that transition particularly well, in my opinion, is are the guys that, that, that concentrate on technical, even on the golf course. I mean, yes, that's fine. You know, we, we all, 
we all work on technical, but as soon as you step onto that golf course first tee, I think you've got to become an artist more than a scientist. And it's about getting the ball round. But I've got uh, I've got a couple of guys on the Euro Pro Tour. Actually, I've got a I don't know if you you know the Focus Band um, that goes around the head tells you what side of the brain you're using. Yep. Got an interesting story. That's Steve Richardson in here. He put it on. Um, I don't know if you know the, the product, but I do, yeah. when you're using the correct side of the brain, it goes green and music comes on. And when, when you're using the other side of the brain, it's red and stays red. So he puts it on, he steps onto the mat, it goes green immediately, hits his shot, walks off the mat, it goes red immediately. And it goes on and it goes off and it goes on and it goes off. So I had a, had a Euro Pro guy come in. And it was red constantly, all the time. And he's getting really angry. And Steve was here at the time. I said, oh, Steve, put this on. Just show this guy what, what we're talking about. So he did it. And, you know, it went green and red and green and red. Anyway, he puts it back on. It's red all the time. <laughs> so he picks his phone up and starts texting his girlfriend. It went green. All the music came on. And he's like, oh, what's, you know, what's, what's that? I said, that's, that's the state that you're in now. You are on automatic pilot right now. You text all the time. You're texting your girlfriend all the time. It's put you in a completely different state. And then he was able to relate to that and actually turn it green while he was on the mat. Excellent. So I personally think, yeah, technical gets in the way. I think possibly modern technology has, has had an effect on a lot of players. So I think the modern technology, the amount of information overload for these players. And that, I guess it's, again, the individual, those that can uh, access that information, process that information, and not take it to the golf course are doing fine. But those that are out there thinking, oh, I've got to move into the right heel, or I've got to move into the left toes, or I've got to turn more, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. It's just not the way golf's intended to be played yes there's a time and a place for technology and I've, I've talked about this at seminars in articles and, and in these interviews I guess that my standpoint on this is that there's an increasing reliance on the data yes we, we all have to have the ability to capture the data rather like in the medical world with blood tests and scans and, and that kind of thing and I would far rather have today's medical technology in terms of data capture than that of several hundred years ago. The doctor at least can see much more now and understand if we're well trained to see the correlation between data and how one change can have an impact on some other parts of the golf swing. And I think that you're 100% right in that there's an over-reliance on data capture. And I believe strongly that golf swings or putting strokes don't stand up under pressure. It's the people that stand up under pressure. You talked about the focus band. Have you come across the work of Paul Dolby, who works in the area of bilateral integration? No. I've seen some of his work recently, and I think that it looks very interesting, and it might be worth checking out for yourself as it relates pretty closely to some of what you mentioned with the focus band, getting the two sides of the brain working together. I'll send you his contacts. So just to move on, we talked about books earlier. Do you have a favourite book that you might gift to someone? Um, yeah, I gave, I gave a book to a player this week, actually. Um, Love Score Wins. He read it, Eric, Eric Bribowitz, I think, was the author. But um, he saw it and he um, 
Oh, could I borrow that for the week? I said, look, you take it. I can get another one in the UK. It's no problem. So he's, he's taking that to read. Yeah, but I, I give books to people, not just in golf, but guys that are struggling with work or anything like that. I've got so many self-help books and things like that. So I'm always dishing them out. Favourite book will probably Awaken the Giant Within with regards to um, changing my life. That was definitely a massive one. Um, Golf-wise, quite like Percy Percy Bloomer's Golf. Uh, That's a good book. Um, Does it fill the outside, swing the inside or something? I can't remember what it's called, but that was a good book. It's just just loads. I mean, to be honest, this now the the um we've recently moved house but i've got so many the garage has got like six six big boxes of golf books in there and can't get a bookcase big enough for it but i, I guess now I, I i buy a book i get half you know maybe even quarter away through it maybe on the first page and there's something i completely disagree with and i'm like mm, okay maybe on to the next one but just keep reading and keep reading and keep reading and then you just pick up useful tips in all the books, I think, really. Oh, that's great to hear that you share your resources. Is there is there any advice that you might give to a youngster trying to make the grade as a golf professional? Yeah, I mean, I, I would always try and look to find somebody that would act as a mentor. I mean, there's so much information out there. And if you can, if you, can you know, get access to a mentor, then they... Um, they've already got a lot of information that you will be trying to discover yourself. So you'll learn so much quicker if you can sort of pick their brains and, and then develop your own sort of philosophy and theories. So, yeah, I mean, a young pro, remain proactive, remain creative, and, and try and find somebody that you can look up to and, and, and sort of pick their brains and try and, become members of these these types of groups on Facebook and and there's always a, a learning opportunity there. Seemingly, you've never been scared of going and speaking to someone who you'd like to have as a mentor. And yet, I know that there are a lot of people that get really frightened to ask someone for any kind of help. So what's going through your mind and, and did you have to get over that hurdle? The, you know, carpe diem sees the day. You never know when you're not going to see that person or... You know, it might be the only opportunity that you'll ever have to to meet that guy. So, if there's an opportunity to learn, I, 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 you know, the worst that they can say is, "No, I'm sorry, I'm too busy." So, you know, if that's the worst that they can say, then you know, it's it's not that much of a rejection. It's not that hard to hard to take. So, I always think, you know, always ask and try and engage with them and. I think if you if you show these these guys that you're as passionate as they are about the game, then they kind of look at you a little bit differently. Yeah. But I guess some you know some people approach these guys in a in a way that they're only viewed as trying to get out of it what they can. Yeah. But you know the relationship I had with John at the end was, you know, he could hardly walk, so I'd go around there and I you know put his wheelchair in the car and I'd take him fishing because that was his second sort of passion and he fished up until the day he died pretty much so um you know i think it's it's, it's a bit of give and take it can't be all i'm gonna learn everything from you although you know i had a friend that contacted one of the top coaches in the world and um accidentally spelt his name wrong 
and said, you know, could I any chance I could come and you know spend some time with you and blah blah blah. He just sent back maybe when you can spell my name properly. And that was the end of it. And you're like, oh, really? Come on. Yeah. That's not uh, not particularly nice. So I guess I was really lucky in a, in a way that I I found a couple of mentors that were you know approachable and amenable and you know like to help people just before we close kevin and and thank you very much because i've taken plenty of your time and and for me it's been fascinating i've really enjoyed it i have uh, a couple more questions and and the first one is if you could play a four ball with anyone who would you choose as your three playing companions and why and also at what age in their life or, or, or stage in their life would you want them to be at certainly ben hogan he was always sort of portrayed as a, as a difficult man, a, a bit of a recluse. And I'd like to be given the opportunity to talk to him and find out, um, you know, maybe why he was like that and would he change anything. So I'd, I'd love to play with Hogan. I'd love to play golf with John Jacobs and probably Tiger Woods. So Tiger... Actually, I don't know, Tiger or Jack, I'm not sure. Um, I might have to come back to you on this one, Tony. That's a, that's a good question. But I, Well, I can let you play a five ball if you like. <laughs> I'll, go, I'll have Jack Nicholas in there as well then. At what age would you want Jack to be? Uh, 46. So he just won his last major? Yeah. What would you ask Jack? I'd like to know how he stayed so calm under immense pressure actually I probably know the answer to that one because I read some information on Jack before where he said he found that the majors were the easiest tournaments to win because no one else believed that they could win them Yeah, which was a fascinating point of view but um, I'd like to ask him as well how he didn't get overly influenced by anybody other than Jack Grout. So why did he stick with Jack Grout for so long? Why why did he not seek another coach? Pick his brains as to why he did things how he did them. Really enjoyed speaking with you. If people wanted to find you, how could they find you? There is KFly PGA at KFly PGA. Then obviously my name on Facebook. And obviously the golf club as well, Tornbury Golf Centre. Thanks for your time, Kevin. Thank you for listening to this audio article from Ask. Attributes, skills and knowledge. Brought to you by the PGAs of Europe. For more features and articles from Ask, visit www.pgae.com forward slash ASK.